What an amazingly beautiful way to start. Thank you, Adam, and thank you, Barbara. Good morning. We welcome you to this time and to this place set apart for worship. We're glad that each one of you is here today. Today, we also welcome Dr. Peter Hulak to our pulpit. Peter is serving as our Minister of Visitation, and we look forward to what he will share with us this morning. Welcome, Pete. Today, following this service, we'll have another discussion of Citizen, which is the book we're reading together this summer. The details of this discussion are printed in your bulletin insert today, along with information about many other events and announcements. This represents the life and the work of Montview Church, and we hope you'll take a few minutes to read through it. Please consider every entry to be your invitation to join us. And now, as we are here to question, to think, to find ways to serve and to grow with quiet minds and open hearts, let us stand as we are able for worship. Confession is an act of faith. We confess within the assurance of forgiveness and hope. We make our personal silent confessions now. 
and we make our corporate confession saying together, God of grace, we know that your love is more powerful than we can understand, but we admit that we so often hold back on sharing your love. We know that your grace is more than enough for us to live, but we so often continue to seek more. We know that life with you is mysterious and beautiful, but we so often resist on having all the answers. Gracious God, reform us, renew us, and redeem us with your powerful love and grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the children's books that have someone who loves the child saying, wherever you go, whatever you do, I will find you and I will love you. These books repeat the theme of a love that endures through distance and difficulties, through hardships and through mistakes. And this is the good news of the gospel. Nothing can separate us from the forgiveness, redemption, grace, and love of God. Nothing. Wherever we go, God will find us. Whatever we do, God will love us and forgive us. Thanks be to God and amen. such as these, we hear the lament. What is up is down, and what is down is up. And as we look out into the world, we can often see this is the case. But when we look to our faith, which is not of the world, we can see that God holds the center, and we can be centered in God. May this be the truth we share as we greet each other now. May the centering, hopeful peace of God be with us all.
morning, kids. It's great to see you. In a few minutes, we are going to read a story that is about, um, it has two parts to it. One of them is about Jesus going back to the synagogue where he grew up. And the second part is about Jesus sending people out. So on the front of our bulletin today, there's a picture. Why don't you ask one of the grown-ups in your family to bring you back here another time and see if you can find the window that's in this picture. See if you can do that. The second part is about Jesus sending his friends out and to do some special work in the world. And um, Jesus says, you know, um, there's something special about this. Have you ever taken a trip? Where did you go? Was that a great trip? Good, good. Did you um, put anything in your suitcase? Yeah. What, what goes in your suitcase, Derek? Short sleeves. Wow, wow. What else goes in the suitcase? Paul? Pardon? Things to do in the car. Oh, I know, that's right. Um, maybe take a map? What do you think? Anders? What should, what should you be take? Video games if you get bored. Video games if you get bored, I know. Liam, what do you think we should take? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah that's right. Sarah? Hairbrush. Hairbrush, oh yeah. So you know, there's something funny about what Jesus said. He said, don't take anything. Don't take anything at all. Isn't that amazing? Do you think he wanted people to take something in their hearts? Maybe no suitcase, but put something in your heart. What should we take in our hearts when we go on, on a trip? Love. Take God. Oh, yes, Max, thank you. Take God in our hearts. Thank you. What else? What else? What? The way home. The way home. I know. <laughs> yeah. Those breadcrumbs. <laughs> what? One more thing. What else should we take in our hearts? Your thoughts, that's right. What about um, kindness? Would that be good? And um, what if you're with somebody else that kind of acts up and gets a little crazy? Should we maybe take, hmm, patience? Yeah, I think so. Can we say a prayer? Yes. Dear God, thank you for being with us on all the journeys we take. And we ask you to fill our hearts with courage and love and patience and kindness. Amen. See you next week. Let us pray together the prayer for illumination, which is found in your bulletin. 
May your holy word fall fresh upon our lives, inspiring us to live with faith and compassion. Amen. The lesson this morning is Ezekiel 2, 1 through 7. It's found on page 728 in your Old Testament Pew Bible. He said to me, O mortal, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And when he spoke to me, a spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Mortal, I am sending you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are impudent and stubborn. I'm sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they shall know that there has been a prophet among them. And you, O mortal, do not be afraid of them, and do not be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns surround you, and you live among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words, and do not be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. Listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking to the church.
Thank you, Adam and Barbara. Our gospel lesson is from St. Mark, chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Jesus left that place on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? But wait, is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And Jesus could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. Thanks be to God. Grace and peace to each of you. I suspect that everyone here can identify with the humbling nature of standing in this pulpit. The experience is humbling because so many wiser people have stood in this very place and have preached like prophets. Now that, that statement I just made is not an attempt at appearing humble, it is also rooted in the reality for the next 18 minutes you are committed to listening. <laughs> I am grateful for the open-minded people of Montview Presbyterian Church, always ready to forgive and forget. At least up until the beginning of this sermon, you have always been a forgiving people. 
Let us pray together. Gracious God, we ask you to bless the words spoken here. Bless them, God, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It ended up being another rough day at work for Jesus and the disciples. Sure, it had started out pretty well there in Jesus' home synagogue. The congregation liked what he had to say. They liked what he had to say, that is, until they figured out that he was one of them. St. Mark writes that the people took offense at Jesus. In St. Luke's telling of the story, their reaction is more violent. The people ran Jesus out of town, even attempting to chase him off a cliff. It seems like a punishment out of proportion to the perceived crime. What do you think here? Is it possible that there were other reasons they were so angry? Was it something he said? Let's return to that question in a moment. For now, I would like first to reflect on the nature of being a prophet, encouraging us to recognize that titles like prophet and disciple belong to every one of us, not just to people like Ezekiel and Jesus. I hope then for us to consider a challenge in today's culture where prophets and disciples are most needed. Most of us are reluctant to call ourselves prophets or disciples. Still, though, our life stories do include common threads with the lives of prophets and disciples in the Bible. Many of us live lives like theirs, full of oscillations between honor and dishonor. May I tell you a personal story? My life's earliest memories are of being the son of a minister who served First Presbyterian Church in Brighton, Colorado, as the, as the crow flies at exactly 17.5 miles in that direction from this place. Unlike the experience of many other preacher's kids, PKs were often called, my growing up years were pleasant and characterized by being surrounded by a loving community. There were a few of those too much in the spotlight fishbowl moments, but all in all, it was a fine way to grow up. I eventually had the privilege of moving to Pennsylvania attending medical school, meeting Barbara, and marrying her, and then moving back to Denver, where her organ-playing career continued to develop, and my medical studies continued in neonatology, which is the care of sick newborn babies and their families. Barbara and I have had the joy, with the enormously valuable help of this congregation, of raising a family and now I have the honor of serving with you in Montview Church's visitation ministry. A few years ago, I had another privilege, that of returning to Brighton once or twice a week to help that city's hospital further develop their care for sick newborns. On a particular Tuesday morning, I happened to be there seeing a mildly sick baby who was receiving excellent care from his young nurse and his seasoned nurse practitioner. In their very good care, 
the baby's health was steadily improving. Now, please bear with me for a moment while I tell you about the events of the following morning. The nurse practitioner and I were sitting in the hospital cafeteria. After noting that the little patient was still improving, the nurse practitioner told me this, Peter, after you left the hospital yesterday, the nurse said that she had never before been in the same room with a real neonatologist. The young nurse was, as her seasoned colleague described her, so excited and in such awe about the presence of someone so important that she was breathless. She almost passed out. <laughs> hmm, hmm. Now, now that was the very moment at which a very long-time Brighton Presbyterian came into the cafeteria and spotted me saying these words. No, shouting them across the dining room. Peter, Peter Hulak. Boy, you were quite the two-year-old. <laughs> we can all agree that we don't need old Presbyterians like that to point out our imperfections, although most of them do tell truths we need to hear. Here's another truth. If we're healthy and humble enough Christians, we are fully aware of how poorly prepared we are to be prophets or disciples or deacons, or elders, choristers, communion servers, or any of the other priesthood of all believers roles we perform. Yes, we come to know how poorly prepared we are, and we also begin to understand the real shock that we are called to serve as prophets and disciples anyway. We might even grasp the fact that we have more resources than we think we do. Listen to these words from H. Ken Carmichael, the hymn writer. In 1985, he wrote, Today we all are called to be disciples of the Lord. He didn't include any exceptions. Carmichael wrote that we are all called. In the second half of our gospel lesson, we read that Jesus sent his 12 disciples out in pairs calling them to cast out unclean spirits, demons, as they are called in other translations. It is easy for us to assume that Jesus' coaching prepared the disciples for anything. A closer reading of the Gospels, though, helps us remember that they were regular souls much like us. That message comes through clearly. What isn't so clear is the nature of the demons they were called to cast out. So here is our question for the morning. What are the demons of our day? What are we called to say, and what are we called to do? What are the situations God will have us plunge into? If we all got together right now to name those problems, our compiled list would be long. It would certainly include war, racism, prejudice, violence, injustice, addiction, brutality to children, and many more. Like all of you, I pray that we in Christ's church will honor God's continuing call to us to bring about peace, love, understanding, wisdom, 
justice, and loving care for all children. Back to that list, though, may I add one other? Would you be willing to add another challenge? It is our culture's discomfort with uncertainty. This is a subtle demon, isn't it? But then maybe the worst demons are the sneaky ones. What can we say about our discomfort with uncertainty? Some of the most troubling questions these days are why questions. They come in lots of forms like, why did God do this to me or or to us? Why did God let this happen? Where did I fail? Is it because I worked too hard or, or maybe I was too lazy? And some of the answers are even more troubling than the questions. You've heard the hackneyed pop theology explanations. God must have a reason, or God will never give you more than you can handle, or God only chooses strong people like you to carry this burden, or or someday you will understand why this happened. And then this last one, everything happens for a reason. And the explanations we come up with to explain our own predicaments are equally toxic. I must have slipped up somehow. Maybe I didn't keep thinking positively enough, or or it's because I doubted. Now back to the human tendency to ask about why miseries happen. It's not unique to our era, of course. In Job, we read that his three friends seemed to be trying to comfort him when they explained the cause of his woes. A faithful reading of the book of Job helps us understand that his friends, comforters they are called, are really addressing their own queasiness about uncertainty. It really is part of human nature. And every parent of a three-year-old, after all, knows that why questions are part of growing up. This common tendency of ours continues into adulthood and is probably the root of superstition. Maybe you've experienced this at times too. Hmm, the reason that the Rockies have done so well this week against the Seattle Mariners is that I put my Rocky shirt on backwards, my cap on sideways, and I ate exactly one and a half hot dogs. Or was the Rockies slump in June because I did something wrong? Here's a tougher question. Why did I get sick? What did I do to cause it? Why did this happen to my loved one? Why did God cause it or allow it to to happen? So should we adopt a zero-tolerance attitude toward why questions? For more on zero tolerance, come back next week and hear our wonderful friend Sandy Prouty preach more about zero tolerance. The answer is no. Why questions have their place? One of the reasons that premature babies' lung disease is more successfully treated nowadays is because clinicians and researchers ask themselves why it happens. The research and the new treatment followed. 
and in the realm of our own growth as people of faith, we benefit from asking ourselves different kinds of why questions, like, why do I so often react in certain ways? And as Matthew's account of the crucifixion reminds us, even Jesus, dying on the cross, prayed with the psalmist, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Miseries then must be pondered, and why questions deserve to be asked. You might be interested to know that physicians are not immune from asking about what causes suffering. A few years back, I was in a different hospital lunchroom, sitting with a few other doctors. They were talking about the sudden death of a colleague. After a painful silence, one physician blurted out, yes, but he smoked when he was young. It was as if the speaker were answering a question they all wanted to ask but couldn't. Why did our friend die? And maybe there was another unasked frightening question. Am I next? So physicians still struggle with why questions. Here's a story about a seminary professor named Kate Bowler. She teaches at Duke Seminary. Soon after becoming the mother of a new baby, when she was only 35, she heard the tragic news that she has stage four cancer. One of the themes of a memoir she wrote is her observation that so many people tried to explain for her why her cancer happened. Her book has a provocative title followed by an explanatory subtitle. Here they are. Everything happens for a reason and other lies I have loved. Those explainers in Professor Bowler's life, like Job's comforters, seemed to be trying to help her feel better, but it was their own discomfort with uncertainty that motivated their unsuccessful attempts at comforting her. Even worse, their attempts at comforting were discomforting. Professor Bowler has recently written, I am interested in what it is like to live without certainty. Where then is God when bad things happen? Some might say there is no God, or that God is aloof. Others might hold fast to a belief that God oversees every detail, including babies being born too early, and every cancer-causing abnormal cell mitosis. The debate is an important one, but there is a debate about it. Here is what is certain. God's presence often comes when we least expect it. Elijah looked for God in earthquake, wind, and fire, but God was not there. Maybe your experience and mine are like Elijah's that God is present in the still, small voice. Here is another way God is present. God is there in how we respond. One only needs to attend one meeting of our board of deacons to know that God is present. Our deacons drive people to church. 
deliver flowers to others after church. They create meals for others, delicious meals in fact, visit people in need, coordinate home communion, and so many other things. Where is God in suffering? God is right there, right there living as our deacons do and as all of you do in the response to suffering. And God is right there with us as we eventually reach a state of ceasing to protest, of relinquishing the search for certainty, embracing unexplainable mysteries, not trying to explain them, and finding God in places where no one ever thought to look. Let's take just one more look at how we might respond to misery. Why questions naturally percolate up in our own hearts, as they also do in the hearts of others around us? What then are some faithful ways in which we, as prophets and disciples, can best respond? Here are five suggestions. When another person is in pain, let us be good disciples and recognize the importance of the pain. One member of our congregation put it this way a few years ago, when tough questions come up, it is important to honor them. Just don't answer them. Here's a second possibility. When another person is in pain, let us resolve to take a wise disciple step and check our own gut about it before we open our mouths. A good question to ask ourselves is this, what about this situation makes me think that I need to explain it? And when another person is in pain, let us resolve to do the kinds of things our deacons do. To be truthful, it's what this whole congregation does. Do something appropriate. Perhaps it's a meal or flowers or a quilt or a prayer shawl or an offer to babysit or run errands or bring them to church. We might even think about helping anonymously just because it's the disciple-like thing to do, not aiming to be noticed or thanked. Oh, and here's a fourth strategy. It's a bit philosophical. When suffering confronts us, we know that God will welcome our why prayers when they are what flows from our hearts and that at other times we will, like Paul, be able to say, I have learned to be content. Thank you, God. As good disciples, we recognize that life is like that, with lots of days where we are at home, both in the language of asking questions and the language of living without answers. It's a state, if you will, it's a state of being bilingual. And Lamott put it best, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely. Faith, she goes on, includes noticing the mess, the emptiness and discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. That is the heart and soul of discipleship. If that's the heart and soul of discipleship, here are the hands and feet of it all. Again, the words of hymn writer Ken Carmichael, today we all are called to be disciples of the Lord. May it be so.
Let us join together now in prayer. Let us pray. Dear God of all, we pray to you this day within the mystery of your grace. We pray to you in gratitude for all that is beyond our understanding and for all that you reveal. We give you thanks, God, for all the ways that we can know you. We can know you in the beauty of the smallest flowers and in the vast, complicated sky. We can know you in the kindness of passing smiles and in the long, devoted conversations of comfort and care. God, we give thanks that we can know you in the expected and the planned. We can know you in art, in creativity. We can know you in the spontaneous joy, the wonder, the fresh observations of our beloved children. And we can know you in the poignant reflections and the longer life stories of our beloved seniors. God, we give you thanks that we can know you in our connections with others as we see you in the space between us. Thank you, God, for your presence. God of the daily and of also dreams and visions, we pray to you for guidance in our freedom to question. God, please help us to realize that our questions of why may lead us to your mystery that you will always keep. Please lead us to questions that we can answer in love each day. God, as we question why and as we question what now, Please be with us. Help us to ask, how can we better serve our neighbors, the tired and the poor? Help us to ask how we can work for justice, for communication and solutions. Help us to ask how we can live the lessons of Jesus each day, everywhere. God, please help us to ask these questions. These questions we can answer with our hearts, hearts that are broken by the world and filled by you. God, we pray to you this day for all of your people. We pray for all who suffer. We pray for families who are separated now and suffer in sadness and longing. We pray for every parent. We pray for every child. God, we pray for all those who suffer now in addiction and in depression. We pray for your people who suffer in the face of disasters of weather, of fires. We pray for all your people who suffer in the face of violence, 
of prejudice and war. God, we pray to you this day for family and friends, for neighbors and strangers, and for all those we each now name in silence. Dearest God, please hear our prayers. Please fill us with empathy and agency. Please help us know the next right thing to do. Please call us, God, and send us. We will listen. We will go. Gracious God, we pray all things with the words of Jesus, your Son, who taught his disciples to say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We live lives of abundance, and from this abundance and with gratitude, we offer our gifts now to God's work in this place. Let us receive the morning offering.
dedicate all that we are, all that we have, and all that we now share with one voice saying, God, you have so greatly loved us, long sought us, and mercifully redeemed us. Give us grace that in everything we may yield ourselves, our wills and our works, a continual thank-offering to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
seated. This is just a quick note for you parents. If indeed your kids do ask you to bring them back to search for that stained glass window that's on the cover here, you have two choices. One is let them hunt for it, or the other is take them to that window over there. (laughs) The worship service is now ended, but our service continues. As you leave, you might look out at the lighted green signs above the exit doors. At first glance, you might think they are just four letters. With eyes of faith, though, you will see that there are five letters, and the sign really says, enter. As we enter the world for service, we disciples go with the certainty that God is with us to encourage us, to challenge us, and to comfort us. And go then with these words. May the God of peace make us complete in everything good so that we may do God's will, working among us that which is pleasing in God's sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.